If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9, please. This morning's sermon, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 37. Father, we are here before your word as little children, unable to understand and perceive and know the things that are too great for us. We know that we need your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So we are bowed before you this morning now and asking you to please help us to see things as they really are. Grant us grace. Protect and deliver us now, even now, from the evil one. So that we right now would be able to receive your word. For we ask this in Jesus' powerful and mighty and holy name. Amen. I'm going to say something that might come across, maybe, perhaps, uh, as a little shocking in terms of how you view the world. Most likely, every single one of you was involved and engaged with demonic activity this morning already. Yeah, and you didn't even realize it. Or maybe you're thinking, well, that's not hard to believe. You should have seen my spouse a couple hours ago. (laughs) What we're going to discover this morning is that when it comes to demonic activity, it isn't always what you think. It's not always the creepy, paranormal kind. We tend to think of it that way, don't we? If I was to say, hey, what would demonic activity look like? Oh, that would be freaky weird. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever seen someone demon-possessed? Never. I couldn't imagine what that would be like. It's because that's the paradigm we often live in. That's how we think of it. As the strange, abnormal, crazy, wild stuff that we don't experience. But what we discover this morning is that that's just not the case whatsoever. That you and I are engaged, moment by moment, in a furious battle. And there's all kinds of stuff going on that we're unaware because we typically live this life and we see through these eyes. And we see just the physical stuff. We don't see the spiritual realm, we don't see the interaction between the two, and we don't see and understand how the the devil influences people and works through them and and how people act and move in so many ways influenced by his activity. We're going to read a passage this morning that's about a boy who's demon-possessed and it's pretty dramatic and you can read it and think, well, that almost seems a little bit irrelevant to us. I mean, when was the last time you saw something like that happen? When's the last time you saw someone exercising demons, you know, be gone in the name of Jesus and, and all this weird, crazy stuff's happening. And it almost seems in the world we live in a little bit irrelevant. But I'm here to say it's not. It's actually very relevant because what we have here is a picture of what this world is like, of what Jesus came to actually do. This serves as like a dramatic picture of what's going on all the time. 
But this is very manifest and very, very dramatic, very weird, very strange, and so it calls a lot of attention to itself. Here's one of the things I think this passage is going to help us to do. It's going to help us to understand that the spiritual world around us, the spiritual world in which we live, which we dwell. The text starts out in verse 37 this way. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, met Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters, it and shatters him and will hardly leave him. The same account in Mark, which was read for us this morning, reads this way. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And then in Matthew, the account there reads this way. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and into the water. And so you hear all three accounts, and they're, they're slightly different. They come from different angles, different perspectives, different details about the same scene. Showing us how accounts are given when testimony is given. If you've ever heard testimony, people giving testimony, you know, it's often like this. Different perspectives, different angles, different details. One person talks about this detail, another person talks about this detail, while both of them forget the details each other talked about. And this is really what we have here. But in today's day, day and age, if you saw somebody having a seizure, if you saw them having a seizure, foaming at the mouth, grinding their teeth, this is typically what we call an epileptic fit. You, and actually, here's a crazy thing. I, I went on YouTube, and you can watch someone have one, and it, and it, it, it looks just, it's, it's like it's just described in Luke 9. You hold Luke 9 and read it, and then you watch that, and you're like, whoa, that looks like the exact same thing. I'm telling you the exact same thing, everything about it. But we never talk, ever today, do we, about the demonic activity in such things. We never talk about the spiritual involved in this stuff. Because in our, our age, we see everything as purely clinical and scientific. To think otherwise is to almost be a quack. Are you, are you, what planet are you from? You know, how could you possibly say that there could be you know, demonic activity involved in this? Yet I think uh, John Calvin has some tremendous wisdom when it comes to understanding this passage and its implications. He says, in reference to the young boy, as the weakness of his brain and nerves made him liable to epilepsy, Satan availed himself of this for aggravating the disease. The consequence was that he was exposed to danger on every hand and was thrown into fainting, a fainting state like a dead man. Let us learn from this how many ways Satan has of injuring us, were it not that he is restrained by the hand of God. So Calvin here is affirming the epilepsy on the one hand, 
but at the same time talking about how Satan uses it to his advantage. And so, so there, he's not just saying that, no, it's not one or the other. No, it's both and. And actually, even, your, even in our own weaknesses and our own frailties, if you have infirmities in your body, these are actually these are weaknesses that allow Satan to avail himself upon you and do things that wouldn't normally happen. And I see this all the time, even with my own wife. So we, we can't just like either or, or like, oh, that's demon possession. That's not. That has no demonic influence. No, he's highly involved in the world. And so a lot of things that we find just common, medical, scientific, it's almost like has to be this category. And then over here, this category, if we're ever going to talk about demonic activity, has a, it, it has to be in this particular box. Well, that's creating a world that doesn't exist. It's not like that. The two are in correspondence all the time. So that we see a lot of the physical things and actions that are happening in this earth have influences, spiritual and demonic influence. <clears throat> Sorry, influences. But yet we don't think like this today. Our paradigm has purely been influenced by the scientific paradigm. And you see it all the time. It's everywhere around us. And as a result, I think we miss a lot of what is really going on. After all, if Satan were involved, we think that a person would have to have demonic look about him. Demonic looking eyes, it'd have to have demonic gnashing of teeth, foaming of mouth. Everything about it would have to be like that, woo, scary stuff. We tend to think that a look is the look of demonic. And if it doesn't have the look, it doesn't have the look of demonic, it isn't. And so that's how we define even demonic activity. But if that's our, th- if our paradigm, just think of how easily we could have missed what happened even in Job's life. We would have completely misunder- misunderstood and, and, and given wrong counsel to him as well. Satan, we know, approaches God. If you've ever heard the story, he comes to God, he approaches God, and then they get in a discussion about Job, and God allows satan to go after job he says but do not touch his person basically he has to stay alive but you have almost free reign with him because satan was telling god that yeah he you have a hedge of protection around him you have him protected i can't get at him you take it away and i know he'd curse you so god says okay he's yours just don't take his life then what happens satan goes to work he's working and now listen to this i'm going to read for you job chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 which says And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down, down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And then in verse 17, a couple verses later, it says, While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another person. He said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So did anybody in those scenes, did anybody see satanic activity? Did any of them? No. What did they see? The Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, and a tornado. That's all they saw. 
They saw nothing that out of the... Well, none of it was unnatural. It was all normal. But that was a day very abnormal. That was a bad day on, of epic proportions. And, and it gets worse. But that was a bad day. So that's the abnormality of it. Okay, that was really bad. But would you think in your mind that was satanic activity? No. Because it didn't have the look, right? It didn't have the feel of that. It was, it was too normal. It was like tornadoes. That's what they do. They just rip through and rip up. Like that's what, that's what evil people do. Evil people just, they, they, they seek of ways, find ways to destroy so they could take advantage of you. But no, this was, this was demonic activity from top to bottom. Yet we don't think like this. You know, we often today think our greatest enemies are political physical, financial, or relational. Yet, we don't understand the demonic connection to all these things. We don't understand how the world is even put together so often because we get so used to looking with our eyes and evaluating according to our eyes that we don't understand the interplay between the two. And as a result, we fail to see the greatest battle we fight on a daily basis. Let's just look at how the Apostle Paul tells us what our battle really is about. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, princip- against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. So Paul clearly wants us here in this passage to understand that our primary battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and darkness in, in the heavenly places. First Peter says a very similar thing. First Peter five, chapter five, verse eight. Peter tells the saints to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Or how about Revelation 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, how would he have done that? Through people. It wasn't the devil throwing people into prison. It was people throwing them into prison. That you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So the saints are in grave danger because they have a horrible enemy who's seeking to destroy them, who who wants nothing more than them off the scene. They're the primary target because he can't stand the saints because the saints, if they understood things, are engaged in a battle against him and all of his territory. They're they're fighting in a different army against the, the kingdom of darkness, advancing the kingdom of God. 
But it's even, it's way worse for unbelievers because the scriptures explicitly reveal that the unbelievers are completely controlled by him. It says in Revelation 12, 9, that the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So, who has the whole world deceived and under his spell? Satan, the devil, it says. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we, the believers, are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. There is an explicit, explicit statement that we as Christians are from God, it says. But the world is under his power. Now, here's something you have to understand. When it says the word world, it's, the way it's used in the Bible is not meaning the earth or the dirt and everything in it. It's clear and also explicit that Jesus is king of heaven and earth. He rules it all. However, so the reference of world is to these unbelievers, and it's usually there's qualification. The unbelievers, and here's the deal, they're of the world, where believers are of their father in heaven. We're in, so in a sense of heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul is talking about unbelievers, he says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here, Paul calls the devil who? He calls him the God of this world. And what does he do? Well, he blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they are unable to receive the gospel. So they're, they're under his spell. They, they're, they, they're under his power. They're under his realm. They're under his rule. Unbelievers, if you think of who are they under, they are under Satan and his demons. This is where they're under. Believers are under Christ and in God. And there's this battle between the two. Jesus is king of it all. He's over it all. He's been given authority over it all. But now in the midst of it, until Christ comes again, there's this vicious battle. And unbelievers are held captive to do his will. Just think of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul is describing our condition prior to coming to know Christ. And he says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is why Jesus says of the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verses 44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So all the murdering, lying, cheating, stealing, and immorality in this world flows from its fountainhead, Satan, who works through the peoples. And then what you have here is, is, is you bring in the, into this equation our own sin. And he could take our own sin and, and inflate it and use it and stimulate us in ways that cause us to sin even more. So the fountainhead, the one who's in charge of it all, the one who has the world under his spell, the one who, who has power over them because of sin and death, is Satan. 
hopefully we can see that the scriptures are clear and explicit that our true battle as Christians is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We have to understand that. And at the same time, we have to also understand that unbelievers are held captive to do his will, Satan's will. Yet what do our eyes see? What do your eyes see? When you look around, what do you see? You see flesh and you see blood. You see people. They don't see the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. I don't know. Maybe your eyes do. I, I don't, I've never seen it. So what we see in this story of the epileptic boy is really a picture of what the whole world is like. And in Jesus and in the disciples, we see how the church is to fight against this enemy. Jesus is coming to do battle. He's coming to destroy. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, we know that there's the three main enemies, right? Satan, sin, and death. Mike even talked about in the call. And Satan, who's the ruler of it all, uses sin and uses death to hold them captive and for them to do his will. We have to see, we have to see this world with eyes wide open. God has got to give us a revelation to see and understand that we just don't see with our eyes, we see with spiritual eyes. That we understand what's really going on and have a full understanding that we are in the midst of a serious battle. Now the question is, if we're in the midst of a serious battle, we have a serious enemy, what do we do? And this is where we need to understand the necessity of prayer. The absolute necessity of prayer. The text in Luke doesn't mention the necessity of prayer because, again, it's from a different perspective and angle. But in Mark, more details about this story are given. And it's there that we see the disciples, we see why the disciples weren't able to actually deliver this boy. Mark 9, 28 reads this way. Now listen carefully. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out but by praying, but by prayer. Prayer. Jesus here is letting his disciples learn something about the power of prayer. Prayer is one of the two weapons we have in the warfare against our enemy. In Ephesians chapter 6, once again, you go back to that passage, chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, immediately following Paul's stating who the true enemy really is, who we battle against, and then what we're to do defensively. What does he say next? Put on the full armor of God, right? That you may be able to stand. That's your defenses. But then you realize at the end of it, he turns towards our two weapons that we have. The two offensive weapons, the word and prayer. He says at the end of this, uh, in verses 18 through 19, after he talks about taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, he says. He says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. So one of the main weapons we have against the enemy is prayer. 
one of the central weapons of the church. Just think of how Peter would have been utterly destroyed had Jesus not prayed for him. Luke 23, 31 through 32 says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that you, your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What an unbelievable window into the, the back scene behind the curtains. What was going on? Peter had no clue. Boy, are you ever th- Peter ever thankful that Jesus prayed for him? Not only Peter, but do you realize that Jesus prayed for us as well? In, in John 17, he says, I pray for those who will believe. Not just those who are here, but those who will believe. And then in verse 15 of that chapter is where he prayed that we would not be taken out of the world, but be delivered from the evil one. That's what he prays to the Father for all of us. I pray, the Father, that you would not take them out of the world, but that while they're in the world, that you would deliver them from the evil one. Also remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. The Lord's Prayer. Do you realize one of the major tenets of the Lord's Prayer? There's not many of them. It's a short prayer. There's just a few basic areas. But one of the major tenets of the Lord's Prayer is that we pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. And one of the aspects is, deliver us from the evil one and lead us not into temptation. So Jesus is saying, deliverance, protection is huge. It's a huge aspect. But how many of us even think to pray about it? Even thinking, like, we just pray for blessing, we pray for, we go on through life, and we don't think about the fact that we're engaged in a battle and we have an enemy who wants to destroy us, and we actually need God's protection. We need to be like Job before Satan came. You notice there's a hedge of protection around him? That's what you need. Because here's the thing we need to start realizing. But this life is a deadly battle, man. It's a battle for souls. Our enemy wants to destroy our spouses, our marriages, our children, our neighbors, our co-workers, our own persons. And he's not fooling around. It's not a joke. He's a roaring lion seeking to devour Yet here's the great thing. Jesus has not left his church without weapons for victory. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the advancement of the church. I am going to build it. I am going to advance. I am going to win. I'm going to conquer. And the gates of hell, they won't be able to withstand it. And then he gives us two little simple weapons to go do it. Prayer and the word. Now go. Well, these? Yeah. Wow. A lot of words are involved. It seems like there's words. We just speak words. By speaking words, there's this power. And Jesus says, yes, by my word, I will destroy him. 
Jesus designed it so that your prayers are the means through which God works on his people's behalf. And I'm convinced that if we understood the kind of danger our souls were in, our children were in, our marriages were in, our spouses were in, our neighbors were in, from the enemy, and we understood the power of prayer, you would have a hard time stopping us from praying. Just think of how watchful you would be if you knew that sometime during the night someone was going to come and attack your home. Do you think you'd be sleeping? I don't think so. (laughs) Because the nature of the attack, the nature of the threat, the danger that's imminent is actually going to cause you to get a little bit stressed. And that stress is going to not, hopefully, if you fall asleep during that, uh, you know, something's wrong. This is why Jesus was perplexed by the disciples. You're sleeping again? He asked them to watch and pray with him. And Jesus knows, because he has eyes to see the level of conflict that's going on. The disciples are delirious. They don't even have a clue. Man, I'm tired. Doesn't that sound like us so often? Just have no clue what's going on. Rage and war. Lives are at stake. This is epic seriousness. And we're like, do we have to pray? And it's because we're not aware. We don't have eyes to see. We see flesh and blood. We see with physical eyes and we see things around us. And we're we're just like the world totally don't get what's going on. We're in the middle of a serious, serious raging battle. And lives are at stake. But thankfully, you know, even we see that Jesus has given the church, he's given her the prayer and the word. Because this this is also what I'm going to focus on now, the power of Jesus' word. If we look at this text, we're going to see something here. Really, it's, it's, it's awesome. Beginning at verse 41 in our text, it says, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So Jesus shows up on the scene and everything changes. The demon-possessed boy is unable to be delivered by the disciples because they didn't pray. But Jesus only had to say a word. It's Jesus' word that overthrows the work of Satan. And if you read the Gospels, watch what it is. Jesus speaks and the enemy pushes back. He speaks, and territory is gained. He's releasing the captives by mere word. He declares, and darkness moves back. His kingdom advances. He just speaks. He doesn't need to yell. He doesn't need to shout, Come out of the boy! Big dramatic. He, He could have said, Come out. He's out. Why? Because all authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus. As we we just looked at in Ephesians 6, right after Paul exhorts us of the destructive 
I mean, of the destructive nature of the fight and the fact that we're in the fight and gives us the defensive armor of God to put on. He says this in verse 17, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the, which is the word of God, the word of Jesus. So there are two offensive weapons. We have Jesus' word that is spoken, the prayers of the saints together, making an advancement, pushing the enemy back, advancing the kingdom of God. It's that simple. Prayer and the word. These two work together like an offensive line and running back. Now, if you're a football fan, fan, you might like this analogy. If not, you might not. Uh, I know Mike would like it. Like prayer, the offensive line keeps the enemy back and opens up space for the running back to march down the field who is like the word of God to make an advance. So either, if either is lacking, no progress is made. And you saw a great example of this last week with Seattle. <laughs> kind of like the church. Getting advanced on. Why? Offensive line is not doing so well. Running back makes an attempt but doesn't do so well. Because they don't understand that both are absolutely necessary. Sometimes you have churches that's all about prayer and very little on the word. Or churches that are all about the word and very little on prayer. Both are necessary. Mike had a great analogy yesterday, him and I talked. He says, he says, oh, he just came up with a D-Day example. He says, just like D-Day. If the troops are going to make any advancement onto the beaches of Normandy, they needed to keep the Germans into their bunkers. And so in order to do that, the best thing was to spray them with fire. Just be, you're not shooting to kill them. You're just shooting to keep them down. Spray the bullets, spray the bullets. And as they keep down in their bunkers, they can't, they can't fire back. and allows an advance to be made. Well, prayer is like the bullets that are being fired that are keeping the enemy back. But as we're able to go forward and we're able to shoot and actually take on the enemy, it's like the word of God making an advancement. So if the church is ever going to make an advancement and storm the beaches of the enemy, then we have to understand this dual threat, the weapons we have. We have to spray fire with prayer. Keep the enemy back and then bring the word of God to the hearts and lives of people. Here's how Paul saw the proclamation of Jesus' word in Acts 26, 18. When retelling that Jesus commissioned him to go to the Gentiles, and he says this, and he, op- and he says he told me to go and open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, Paul is talking about what the Lord's servant should be like. He says that he should teach the word faithfully, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So if people are going to be free from the enemy of their souls and come into the kingdom of God, then they need to hear the word of Jesus. What Jesus did here with the boys, exactly what the church needs to do, declare Jesus' word and watch the enemy pull back, watch people delivered, watch people saved. And what this means 
is that Jesus is going to destroy the kingdom of darkness with a mere word. The greatest power that the world knows besides God is the satanic power. It's a very formidable force. Yet with a mere word, Jesus is going to destroy it. A mere proclamation of the word. The same thing happens. Do you realize that even with the preaching of the word, if you sit here this morning, you're unconverted, the enemy's pushed back, the seed of the word goes in your heart, Jesus will transform people. He will take them out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. Many of us in this room can testify to that very fact. You've heard the word of Jesus, and when you heard it, it brought freedom to you. It brought liberty to you. It rescued you. It delivered you. It saved you from darkness. It gave you a new heart and a new Lord. You wanted to serve him. And if it's happened to you, you could say, yes, and amen. Jesus, his mere word just shattered me. His mere word, it came to me, it spoke to me, and it brought me new life. It's the power of that. Just, it's just a word, some guy declaring it. And I was transformed. And the devil knows this. So he doesn't want that word in your hearts. He doesn't want it in. This is why Jesus said what he did in Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Wow. Did anybody see that happening? No. But it's happening. Does anybody see that the word is not having an effect? It's not doing anything to people's hearts? Well, it's probably a prayerless church. Think of the enemy needs to be pushed back. Pushed back. And the word needs to come and be implanted in the hearts. And take root and grow up and to produce great fruit in the kingdom of God. So here's what we have to understand, people. If victory is going to come to the church, then this one-two punch of the word and prayer must be committed to. This is why the apostles in Acts chapter 6 say this very thing. When they were getting overburdened with the distributions of food, he says, this is not good. We need to get people, assign people to take care of all this food business because we, it says, we need to devote ourselves to to prayer and to the word. Those two things. If we can't be committed to the prayer and to the word, they know that this is detrimental to the advancement of the kingdom. Not that you're not saying it's unimportant to take care of the distribution of food. They're just saying in terms of priorities and the advancement of the kingdom, we have to be committed to prayer and to the word. Because prayer is going to keep Satan out of the garden and the word is going to come like a seed and be planted in the heart so that it can grow up and produce great fruit. But this won't happen and this won't get really deep in our hearts and we won't be really committed until we truly understand the nature of the battle and the danger that we're in. We have to get that. I'm telling you, even my testimony in my own life, this sermon, this preparation has been phenomenal for me. So good. Because it helped me be aware of how little I I truly understand the nature of the battle I'm engaged in. 
I prayed for you guys way differently this week. Just by being aware of the nature of the battle. This is serious business. And people's souls are at stake. And you guys need to be protected from the evil one. You need a hedge of protection around you. You guys need to know that your children, your families, the people around you, their souls are at stake. And you need to know that you possess the the most powerful weapon that there is, the two weapons there are, that you have prayer and the word. It's what they need. If they're to be protected, if they're they're to grow, if they're to mature, they must be prayed for. And, and, And don't forget a major component in the prayer, the Lord's prayer, is deliver them from the evil one. Lead them not into temptation. They need that protection around them. They need the Lord going before them and behind them and beside them to shield them. You, you folks, you're not strong enough. <laughs> you will get annihilated, destroyed, unless the Lord go before you. Unless the Lord be a defense be your shield, be your rock, be your fortress. And you've got to understand your weakness and the weakness of everybody around you. You've got to understand your vulnerability. You've got to understand that, the, that, that Satan is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking to devour whomever he will. He's looking for places. And we've given him and we've allowed him places because we failed to protect the people around us with their prayers. Because Jesus has given everything we need for victory. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. But not just as we skip along and neglect everything he's ever said to us. No. The gates of hell will prevail against us if we don't get and understand, get involved in the game and realize that prayer and the word are the essential elements by which we will make an advancement. Yeah, what is the reality? We're too busy going about our lives thinking the real problems are the ones on the surface. Who got in political office? How are my finances? You know, and we don't understand. Don't create this category like somehow those things don't matter. The whole reason why they matter is what's happening is the enemy's using those things. (laughs) It's those things that are affecting you. And don't think that, oh, Dean talked about the spiritual world, but I I don't know what he's talking about. I'm involved in a physical world, and everything I see and everything that's coming at me is like, I don't have time for that garbage. I've got payments to make. Well, those payments, those financial problems are directly connected. That's what the enemy's going to use. That's where the battle's at. It's in the engagement of the people and the events and the circumstances and the things that you're walking through day in, day out. When you leave here, you're engaged in a spiritual battle in all the physical things you're doing. Don't separate them. But understand what's really going on. And may you pray and swing the word. And if you do, Look out. Look out. I truly believe that if we look around here in the city around us and all these people who are held captive by the enemy, it's a shame on us that we don't pray for them. 
We're not in deep prayer for them and, and, and burdened by them because we know they're held captive, just like this little boy in the story. They're held captive to do his will, and they need our prayers, and they need the word of God. But we go about our lives, don't we? Neglecting to pray. May God grant us repentance. Father, Father, we need grace. We need eyes to see. We need to truly understand the nature of this battle. And Father, we desperately need to see how serious this is. Help us to also understand, O Lord, the power of prayer in your word. That if we will pray and if we will declare the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, not neglecting either, your kingdom will advance. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Stir us now, O Lord, to be vigilant in our prayers. And vicious, delightful, and good with your word. For we ask this in Christ. Amen.